Now on Drama on One, Digging for Fire, written and produced by Dara Dukes, Ono Kelly and Kevin Brew. A mix of memoir, drama and documentary, the programme explores the nature of youthful creativity as Dara, Owen and Kevin remember their participation in the Limerick band scene of the early 1990s. For the next 40 minutes, this is Digging for Fire. There was something good trying to get out. Some kind of protest, maybe, against macho rock. Rock and roll is one of the most glamorous businesses in the world, but also one of the most difficult to break into. I was Kevin. Kevin was our singer. And I was Owen. Owen was the singer with a band called The Hitchers. And I was Dara, the guitar player with They Do It With Mirrors. Could this investigation, could it be a kind of dialogue, a dialogue between the younger us? We wondered whether being creative was somehow easier back then. And the older us. And if there was anything that we could learn about this from our younger selves. To siphon from these memories a kind of middle-aged transfusion. Put some of that forgotten story that your first gig into the expanding paunch of the now. It's our first gig in France. This is a kind of synthesis. Maybe it begins with building blocks. This mishmash we call creativity. We wrote songs with spontaneity and freedom, assured that whatever might be distinctive about us would be distinctive about them. Biographer Reiner Stack wrote of Kafka's ability to make a synthesis, to fuse two existing dreams into a new one. Dara played guitar. I did my best to sing. We both made cassettes for each other, then got two cassettes and dubbed one part over another, until a song was growing from a floor of tape noise and hiss. What can we learn from our younger selves about creativity? Okay, I found this on the web for what can we learn from our younger selves about creativity. Sometimes it feels that we spend our entire lives trying to return to who we were as children. Here's what we can learn from our younger selves. In our flowery shirts, in our roller skates, in our pajama tops, with the jar of honey on standby to make a voice sing better. Everything we tried felt new and exciting, because mostly it was new to us. We braved the horizontal rain of our hometown. We gobbled chips at Friar Tuck's takeaway. It's not a bad old city. We took a million lifts from our parents. We crossed the Whistling Bridge, now Shannon Bridge, to rehearse in Zarek's studios. And when our band played together, we were really at the edge of our competence, which created an intensity that is hard to simulate. In former ballrooms like the Glentworth Hotel, we listened for our drummer Damien to count us in. Several drumsticks later, and the journey, and the success, and the failure, and the nerves, and the ideas, and the fights, made us think that whatever happened, we have a story for people like you were young before they were old. Because before we wrote with clarity in offices, we wrote like children, looking at words like you might choose colours for your colouring book, and less concerned about the meaning.
Digging for fire. Digging for fire. Digging for fire. Within a week of Limerick, I was sitting in Dennis Cleary's in a poncho, drinking a pint of Guinness, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to have to go with this. <laughs> in Limerick at that time, there was an art student called Betty Conlon. I'd sometimes see her by day with her camera, but more often by night without it, in Buddies or Quinn's or the Termite Club or in Cruz's Hotel. The college disco used to be in, um, what was the place called? Coslo's. The way they had a deal as well, the college with buddies. I was probably on the Wednesday night as well. It was a pound a point for art students and buddies as well. So I would have spent a fair bit of time going there too. Some of her photos re-emerged in a recent exhibition and found their way online. They gave me a good kick in the Madelines. Our tutor gave us a project uh, on cityscape. So for this particular project, I decided to go off and take a different direction and go somewhere where I'd never explored before. There's one which is taken through a wall. It's a very thick wall, might even be part of the city walls. What's framed within this blown portion of a wall is a broad and desolate looking yard. To the right are some low, unloved sheds, all breeze block, corrugated iron roofs and ill-fitting paint-flecked windows and doors. So I wandered around these streets, just absorbing this strange, really old landscape. I'd never seen anything like it before and I certainly didn't know it existed in Limerick. But to the left, and occupying most of the frame, is a large heaving morass which dwarves the shed. I can't tell you what it is, but it looks both organic and inorganic, and it is also smouldering. I was wandering around just taking photographs, and I literally turned a corner at one stage, and I came across this landscape of just complete rubble, and I was like walking across a war zone or something. It was like stepping back in time. I'd say it smells like damp wood burning, and there's a man scavenging around it, poking it with a stick. Perhaps he's digging for fire. Well, that's the way it is with everything anyway. When it comes to an image to look at, everyone sees their own thing, you know? I'm looking at it now and it's totally a boy. <laughs> I totally saw it as an But you were seeing it as this, this man standing by the fire. And that's a completely different context as well, you know, it's a completely different feeling than a young fella just starting a bonfire. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's clear to me now that it is a young fella, but... Uh, <laughs> looking, looking for trouble. That's the melancholy man in you, you know? thinking about this man, reflecting by the bonfire. It would be a lie to say that this was the hill where we three middle-class boys were raised, but it's true to say that it was the unremarked backdrop to all our activities, fetid vistas. There's only so much you can do with a smouldering heap. So we made our own stuff up. Loads of us did it. Most of the people we knew were in bands, and because I still live there, I still meet some of them. I often forget their names, but I never forget what band they were in. Oh, he was the drummer with a touch of Oliver. That guy, he was the bassist in those stilted boys. Wasn't she the singer from The Charming? Kev, didn't you have one about an obliging hermit crab who was patrolling the yogurt pink sands? I'm glad you asked me that, Owen. Yes, we did. He told me that the path to true contentment lies in acceptance of yourself. Not that you do, but if you did want to make someone feel foolish, 
you might start just by quoting their own words back to them. I think about that when I'm looking at the lyrics of our song, Life in an Anorak, devoted to the isolation of the nerd. In a time where nerd meant nerd, before the term had been changed to mean coder wunderkind surveilling your phone. No, this song was for the nerd in me and the nerds around me, partially lost in a snorkel anorak, an F-shape like a chimney on a cruise ship, scared of teacher and furiously memorising school books. I think that's what the song is about. I think. So let's quote from our own words, unravelling an imaginary crumpled piece of paper lost long ago. An extra in a B-movie. You are one of the digits in the world harmony. I want to be, I want to be an extra in a It's an attempt to put an arm around the shoulders of people who weren't feeling very cool, including me. Making a lot of dreamy assumptions about harmony on planet Earth, of course. We're trying to have the precious idea of unachievement if we could all agree to unachieve in unison. But what I remember most is not the meaning of the words at all, but the happiness of being a youngster, loved and fed. Scribbling about the world, and never ruining those thoughts with knowledge. Wacky. 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 Wackiness. Wackiness. Odd, irrational, erratic, or unpredictable behavior. A big part of Irish band life in the late 1980s was something called wackiness. Someone who is now a famous novelist once called us self-consciously wacky. It was a mild put-down which we took as a compliment, a badge of pride. We wouldn't have been hurt by it, even if he had already been a famous novelist. Wackiness, from whack, hence a wacky person, one who behaves as if they'd been whacked on the head. Wackiness. Quirky, clown-like, exuberant behaviour on stage. Lead singers did bad dancing on purpose. In dance, as in everything else, we lacked training. Band members dangle from balconies, either as an interdisciplinary reference to Dadaist performance art. Or because they realised the band had forgotten to do the chord change and there was time to fill. And it went into the writing. We dived deep down into the sub-subconscious. madness is part of how you present yourself. And come back with some unexplained treasure that we could try and turn into some kind of song. It was evasiveness. Not stopping to worry about the fine stitching or... Uh, Not giving them any way to pin you down. The coherence. We squished Wanderly Wagon, Led Zeppelin and Monty Python into the lyrics of They Do It With Mirrors. For example, we had a song devoted to the human knee. I can know that you are equidistant from my hip and my toe. They Do It With Mirrors, Kevin and Dara's band, got married to the Hitchers, the band I was in, in a beautiful double bill at a venue called The Granary. Some people will do anything for attention, said the Limerick leader at the time. But whether we were in roller skates or stopping a gig midway through to be wacky and play soccer on the dance floor, we were trying to make gigs a little more interesting for ourselves and hopefully for the onlookers. 
except the man who threw a cheeseburger one night in the speakeasy. But who am I to attack his freedom of expression? Anyway, how can we be free like that in this, the adult world? I thought Limerick was a fantastic city. There was plenty of nights out and, and then there was loads of gigs as well. You would have gone to different gigs and then the art school would have run a good few gigs like um, the Golden Horde used to seem to play a lot. <laughs> Sultan's of Ping, they would come up and went to see the pictures and they would have seen um, the do it mirrors and the cranberry sauce they were that was what they were at the time so we would have seen all the local bands as well fragrant 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 i'm afraid these were not fragrant times acrid was the word on everyone's lips when you came to a sound check there was always a post-wedding party feel flat pints overflowing ashtrays Surprise wet patches in the carpets. Two, 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 one, two. Or worse, the snare drum. The sound checks were always longer than the gigs. It's cold and it's damp, but soon there will be lights, and yes, there will be a smoke machine. A smoke machine was as essential as a bass player and you might have to scour the back streets between the soundcheck and the gig to hire one. And the smoke machine, unlike the bass player, always got paid. Long before Heston Blumenthal, the smoke covered everything. The odours, poor wardrobe choices, bad choreography. It might even have improved the musical arrangements. It also gave cover for your friends and maybe the odd Uber fan who would gyrate up front to help take the spare look off the crowd on a slow night at the door. And on other, better days, it would hide from you the raised, gazing eyes of wrapped, sweat-soaked faces until the house lights came on. When we played for the Limerick Art College Rag Week Ball, we did a cover version of an Aerial Automatic washing powder commercial. One speck of dust on that dress and... To us, this jump in presentation from TV commercial to indie rock group was exactly our kind of synthesis. I think the challenge we wanted was to not understand where we were going, but to follow energetically as the momentum built. As adults, we feel obliged to understand or be able to explain our every action. Even now, look at us. Looking back, that's what we're at. Searching desperately for meanings and processes and finding only what looks from here, like creative freedom. One thing we never did, but I really wish we had done, was this idea we had of a kind of a reverse punk ending to a gig. Instead of smashing your guitar into a million pieces a la Sid Vicious, the idea was you'd come to the end of the gig and then patiently assemble a guitar, getting the neck joined to the body, French polishing the guitar and putting on the strings but maybe all the while still sneering at the crowd, like you're still a really uncompromising punk. But just with really high-developed craft skills. Get discovered. Get discovered. Get discovered. Get discovered. The way to get discovered was to play Dublin's Bagot Inn. In those days, Dublin teamed with A&R men traversing the town with suitcases of ready cash to greet the promise of unsuspecting musical acts. They'd put you on stage there if you pre-sold £45 tickets, which you'd sell to well-meaning aunts who never went to gigs. On the bus home, we all noticed that there were other towns in Ireland 
towns even worse than ours, which was at least a city. We despaired of life itself. Only we did so out loud. A lumbering man interposed his head between us and intoned with grave menace, listen, shitface, this is my town. We like to give our stories endings to all the teenage and slightly older bands of Limerick and elsewhere. The happy ending was getting signed. Getting a record deal with a big record company. Getting wages. Recording in posh studios overlooking glaciers. Flying in Tuvan throat singers to do the backing vocals and then turning them down to be virtually inaudible in the final mix. Fighting baldness with expensive hair transplants. Damien was the drummer with They Do It With Mirrors and he sent the demo to the record companies of London. Satanta Records was interested. An Irish label based in Camberwell in South London, home to the Frankenwalters, the Divine Comedy and A House. Satanta wanted to sign us promising to release some EPs to begin on vinyl. This was just before the big move to compact discs. Remember them? In return, we had to show that we were serious by moving to London as a full-time band. There were no two ways about it. This was a real start. Things happened in London. This Lilliputian record deal was going to be a stepping stone to a major one. So after some family meetings, college leaves of absence, and even a change in bass player, we were in London. And we were signed... What did it mean to get signed to a record label in the early 90s? Well, around this time, you too signed to Polydor for $200 million. And what about at the other end of the scale? There were some small labels that paid out a few thousand pounds for recording and manufacture and promotion, but there was no actual money for the band members. To which category did the contract that they do it with mirrors signed belong? Unquestionably, to the second category. Signed. The world was so in need of our music that we had to do another kind of signing. At the dull queue on White Hart Lane. A portrait of the artist as a young welfare recipient. The dole seemed a necessary kudos offset. At that time, you wouldn't want to risk being seen as getting on in any way. Pretending that the past fortnight had been spent canvassing Pizza Hut instead of practising bar chords in a Camberwell lockup. Um, for those of you who were never on the dole while trying to get some creative endeavour off the ground, it involved providing evidence of the constant and often fictional pursuit of a real job. Neesden was, as Lord Kitchener never said, the dole office for me. A taint on the fairy tale? Oh, the lads are gone to London with the band. We were soon all quite slim because we lived on rice and soup. And even though I thought my brogue might work for the vacancy in short-lived unregretted baked potato chain spud you like I remember we once photographed the fridge because it was almost full I still have the picture look the phone rings had I heard of Bruce Springsteen did I know he was on a world tour would I like to pick up litter after the gigs in Wembley Stadium Neesden Dole Office was always good for matching the candidate to a suitable employment reverse into space there was a lay-by on the Cork side of the entry to Limerick, right? And there was like, there was like a yellow 
sign in this lay-by that said reverse into space, you know, like, and we just thought this was hilarious. <laughs> I can't, uh, and I remember actually making... But just before our newly signed friends went to London, there was one last gig, Limerick's Lark in the Park. Colm O'Callaghan went along to review it for the examiner. Here's the part about they do it with mirrors. They do it with mirrors are Keith Cullen's brand new Satanta band, four guitar funksters on the lunatic fringes. They've got a tiny frontman, Kevin, and an enormously strange voice, lots of offbeat guitar and frothy-headed bass. Cullum went to London around the same time as we did. I'd started working with the Frank and Walters. Keith signed the Franks and they ended up moving to London and I ended up moving with them. Keith, I know, was looking for a bit of help. Satanta's roster of bands was growing at that time and the label was building fans and profile in the music press. So there was the, there was Melody Maker, NME and Sounds, I think, which were the three inky weeklies. And, and, and there were some bands who were signed on the strength of reviews, like live reviews, you know. They were very, very powerful. They were very, very powerful and, and maybe too powerful. Zane Lowe, writing in the NME, says the Irish four-piece are Satanta's latest signing and have just released a wondrously sumptuous EP, so expectations are high. This is They Do It With Mirror's first London gig, and you can smell the fear as they creep on stage. A spacious, empty dance floor, and on its perimeter a London audience, some of whom probably saw Radiohead's first gig. Why are they so far away from us? Wearing my confidence sweatshirt, donated by artist Cynthia from Limerick. Okay. They really don't like us. It's probably going great. Are they right? They just express themselves in a more reserved way here. Living in London, you were sort of closer to making it. We lived in Broadwater Road, inheriting an apartment from the more established bands, that Petrol Emotion and the Divine Comedy. Like you're closer to Top of the Pops, physically closer. We confused the bus drivers of Tottenham by saying thanks. He, he felt that the Irish music industry actually was a fallacy, that it didn't actually exist at all. And Irish lads living on the same street kindly promised not to steal from us, their countrymen as they carry somebody's freshly liberated television down Broadwater Road. And that London was the seat of power, and that's where the goodies were. were, were. Typical journey to soundcheck. Carrying by hand, one Jazzmaster guitar in hard shell bouquets, approximate weight 12 kilos, plus one sports bag of effects pedals, approximate weight seven kilos. Bus from Lordship Lane to Woodgreen Tube Station. Get Piccadilly Line service south to King's Cross. Change there for Northern Line. Damage to both shins, attempting not to injure other commuters while crossing platforms. On Northern Line service towards Camden. Have to apologise for wonking an American tourist with my case. Then notice that the blue sports bag in the bomb alert warning posters on the tube is identical to the one carrying my effects pedals and that several other commuters appear to have noticed same. Irish accent will have added to their alarm. Take five points from self-esteem. Usual struggle to insert tube ticket with one hand while carrying both items in other. Arrive at venue with slight limp. Hungry. Very sweaty. Hopefully there'll be crisps in the rider. <sighs> the rock and roll life. The marquee, the venue, the falcon. We played them all. And I remember this sound from our gigs. 
We weren't some avant-garde noise collective reinterpreting the domestic soundscape. It's just, we were on so early in the build, there was a good chance somebody would be hoovering. Soon after, we read a review of our EP, a fusion of some fragments of originality, contaminated by our crisscrossing fetishes to be Nirvana, to be the Pixies, to be Dion Warwick, to be Jethro Tull in the Beatles. Pretentious bullshit, wrote Barbara Ellen in the New Musical Express. But we knew we could rely on some good backup from our champion in Camberwell, the record company boss at Satanta Records, who had previously filled up our chests with praise over pints of Castlemaine 4X. Hey, Keith. Did you uh, read that review we got? You're shit. I told you. Change your name. Cycling past Elephant and Castle, learning that the tube stations were actually quite close to each other. Thinking about the difficulty of being sh. Hi, Kev. Yeah, ma'am. Well, how are you getting on? Yeah, great. What's the flat like? Yeah, there's not too far from the bus that then goes to the tube that goes to town. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Dad. Well, how's it going on? Ah, oh, we're fine. Have you, um, have you made any progress? Yeah, talk of a publishing deal, kind of. Are you eating all right? Oh, yeah. Any sign of work? Yeah, somebody wants us to play in a place called The Lost Scene in Zurich. They, they said they'd feed us. Do you know the letter I sent you? Mm-hmm. Was the money still in it when you got it? Yeah, I got it. Thanks so much, ma'am. Okay, we'll talk soon. Ah, Kev's parents. What to expect when you're expecting. Could probably have written their own book on that. Around that time, I spent three months working in a bar in London, which probably wasn't that well paid, but did make me infinitely richer than my successful rock star friends. But they were in a different sphere entirely, and they got guest passes to gigs. One of these was for the Breeders at the Town and Country Club in Camden, but because the travel pass was about half the weekly dole, Kevin got to go, I think Damien might have gone, I went, and my sister Susie came, but for the rest of the band, there simply wasn't the money to take the journey, even though they had tickets for the gig. But still, don't get me wrong here, they were indisputably living the rock and roll life. Kevin told me casually how he had recently borrowed Cahill Coughlin's keyboard, I loved the Fatima Mansions, and I idolised Cahill Coughlin. If you could borrow his keyboard, you had made it. Made it. Made it, made it, made it. Oh, look, there's, a, there's an article about the lads here. From the Limerick Leader. Busy times ahead for those musical mirrors. The news from London is that everything's going great, for they do it with mirrors. Uh, boys, Eldorado's starting in a minute. Yeah, you know the new, new thing. The article continues. This welcome news was delivered by Kevin and Dara when I spoke with them during the week. Have you got those pot noodles ready? Oh, we're just sharing one, are we? They've been in London now for nearly three weeks. And as Kevin stated, it's all been practical, grocery stuff so far. Dara also related that they'd got their flat sorted out and they'd also found a place to rehearse. 
the phone refused to ring. In the middle of this London stuckness, Dara stages a kind of protest, adopting the deadpan determination of the Monty Python Ministry for Crazy Walks. He spends his dole as fast as is humanly possible. 27 quid, is it? As though part of some performance art challenge. I'll show them. He guzzles down a bacon double cheeseburger as I try to keep up, then another one, then a pint of tenant, before leaving the pub to browse the shelves of a nearby boots chemist for the most expensive shampoo he can find. Clocking in at something like 15 sterling. There, all gone, he says. <laughs> Suckers. I'm proud that at least one of us has defiantly, if self-defeatingly, taken back control. <sighs> Even if it means we're going to be eating a lot of noodle soup for the next fortnight. Digging for fire. Digging for fire. Digging for fire. Dara? I don't know. We're just not getting anywhere. We need some new perspective. We need a new way of looking at this. Feels like a dead end. Keep at it, Dara. Because one thing that we all know about music now that we didn't know then is that the music you listen to when you're younger is the music you gravitate back to in later life. You tap into that emotion felt by your 19-year-old self. When you listen to a particular piece of music, you are resurrecting something that perhaps might otherwise slip beyond reach. Uh, this is just more of that melancholy old man stuff, isn't it? Is this the melancholy old man in me? I'm not sure. I'm actually not really sure which star I'm talking to. Is it the one that's now trying to make this program? Or is it the guy who was back in London trying to make it with his band? Now keep going on. You're talking to both of us. For some people, yours is that music, that perfect time machine that they can use to reawaken their former selves. And maybe the same goes for creativity. When you've done it when you were young, maybe it's just a matter of finding the right frequency where those songs are still playing, returning to your own smouldering morass, poking a stick in, digging for fire, until every now and then, a flame catches. Do you want to continue with the story, Dara? Yeah, let's get back to the story. Our rehearsal room in Camberwell was just down the hall from my bloody Valentine's, and Kevin Shields came in one day and showed me how you could overdrive this Vox amplifier that I was using by looping one channel into another. This was gold dust to me, because we were getting more interested in what we could do to make our sound more dynamic, but at the same time, we were an indie guitar band, limited by what we could do with our instruments. So really, once we had some chords we liked, we tried to get the guitar and the bass to bounce around the drums, and together, quite quickly, we could be up and running with the beginnings of a new song. There was in fact great liberation in these limitations that we probably had no sense of at the time. Fast forward to today and... The phenomenon of overchoice occurs when many equivalent choices are available. With digital technology, we have huge software instruments and sample libraries at our fingertips now. So those same four chords, 
can be open to an endless world of options and possibilities. All of these choices can light up and wave and call your name and want to be your new best friend and join in your composition. And it's all so tempting and shiny and new and... Well, you can easily forget what you were actually trying to capture in the first place. Although larger choice sets can be initially appealing, smaller choice sets lead to increased satisfaction and reduced regret. On tour. On tour. On tour. Come with us as we collect in Turnpike Lane a rental van and travelling southwest from London to Bournemouth board a ferry bound for Cherbourg where we'll stay up late enough to see which cabins are free and finally sleep in an empty one, only to be woken during the night by the four burly Welsh rugby supporters whose cabin we're asleep in and who will spontaneously beat us up before we can get away to roam the ship nervously until morning when, not forgetting to drive on the right, our mostly silent travelling group will stop off at Utah Beach where our stay will be drawn out because our friend and driver, Kieran will try to dislodge a bullet from the wall of a casemate Bonjour. with the ignition key. L'association automobile. Bonjour. Uh, and it will snap in half. Do you speak any English? Oui, un petit peu. We have broken the ignition key of the car and uh, we need to get to Paris. Et où êtes-vous exactement? Uh, we are near uh, Poupville. But France is going to smile upon us. Wow, I mean, you're connected with verb and suede. Wow, I didn't see this at the time. So, due to the appearance of bands like verb, suede, and they do it with mirrors, that bring a new blood to the musical scene with their originality and their personality. I'm with a lovely French woman at the time, Estelle. Hi, I'm Estelle. Who organizes lots of gigs <laughs> for us in France. Sorry, okay. So there was La Route du Rock, uh, La Gare uh, in Les Herbiers, the Rock and Solex, Bernard Lenoir and the Programme en France Inter. So I think after that it's easier for me to ring places, look for gigs. Come on, Estelle has organized a tour. We're going to play La Route du Rock in Saint-Malo with Ned's Atomic Dustbin and the Senseless Things and the Rock and Solex Festival in Rennes but we're going to be so surprised when some of the crowd will know the words and sing along to our songs as we play. And we'll begin to do interviews with magazines and radio stations and even sign some of our own newly pressed records. And we will feel that we are arriving at last into our destination, whatever our dream is. We will have percolated its outer fibres and we'll begin to feel the warmth of its glow and the promise we'll build as our van passes Saint-Léger-des-Bois, to backstage at our gigs in Angers and Cholet. Riders of runny, brie, French sticks, salty chips and delicious red wine will carry us home to attic rooms and spare floors of friends of friends of friends where we will wake to bowls of strong coffee and broken English conversations. Mon croissant et phosphorescent. directement euh, sur l'Irlande, de faire un petit tour par Paris et d'être là ce soir pour peut-être nous balancer quelques chansons en direct. Qu'est-ce que t'en penses Oui, je crois que c'est ça. Let's do it with mirrors. Then Bernard Lanoir, the French John Kelly, or John Peel, starts playing our EP on his show Les Anrocotibles, with its brilliant name implying there's a certain kind of devotion to rock that cannot be tainted. 
We bring our nerves and acoustic guitars to Paris for a studio session. David Wismers en session acoustique depuis le 117 de la maison de la radio. Kevin Darak, si toutefois c'est comme ça que ça se prononce, et Gérald. Damien, lui, c'est le batteur, mais on lui a pas proposé de batterie aujourd'hui. Et là, il écoute. Back in the London flat, we start working really hard to bridge the gap between our limerick playfulness and the much higher standards blaring from speakers and venues like the mean fiddler in the town and country club. Dara, Jerry and Damien create crazy circles of chords of heavy guitar on a Fostex 4-track that sounds like a toy, while we try and weave cartoon lyrics into a heavier sound. And then this riff is going around and around, being tried out in new combinations on different guitars, going through that yellow boss pedal with the overdrive turned up full, printing itself onto a cassette, crossing out words and making them rhyme, explosion, commotion, potion? No, not potion. Until we get to the studio that used to be owned by the Eurythmics, the church, and finally make something that we think sounds like something. But it's too late. This track will never see the light of day. There's just been too many empty days. Too many nights where visiting friends have paid for all the drinks. Too much noodle soup and chips and pita. Some of us aren't talking to each other anymore. Even Dara and I have an argument which would have previously been unthinkable. I'm on the phone to my mother and I can't say any words. There's just this wave going through me. And it makes me start to breathe heavily in a rhythm. And the wave eventually makes me start crying. We're going to have to find some new way to be creative. Some way that relies a little less on a daily diet of noodle soup from a packet. And thankfully, we will. That was Digging for Fire, written and produced by Dara Jukes, Ono Kelly and Kevin Brew.
The original score, sound design and edit were by Dara Dukes. Additional music was by Kevin Brew. Sound supervision was by Ruth Kennington. The contributors were Joanne Betty Conlon, Cullum O'Callaghan, George and Pauline Brew, Francis Barry Ryan, Keith Cullen, Kieran McConville and Estelle Roban Yu. Recordings of They Do It With Mirrors released on the Satanta label feature Kevin Brew on vocals, Dara Dukes on vocals and guitars, Damien Clifford on drums, Ger Fitzgerald on bass and Shane Collins on bass. The programme was adapted from the team's live event at Hearsay International Audio Arts Festival 2019. You can listen back to the programme at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Images for the podcast are by pixelated.ie. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Digging for Fire was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. rte.ie forward slash drama on one.